Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. There is now widespread public acceptance of the reality of climate change and the need for governments to respond. Climate change is increasingly being framed as a crisis or an emergency, yet the recent Australian federal election showed up growing divisions amongst key voting groups about our social and environmental futures. Dr Rebecca Huntley is one of Australia's foremost researchers and authors on social trends. For nearly nine years, Rebecca was the director of the Mind and Mood Report, Australia's longest-running social trends report, and now heads Vox Populi Research. In late 2019, Rebecca visited the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, University of Melbourne, where she gave the oration titled Renewing Democracy in a Time of Environmental Crisis. Rebecca painted a nuanced picture of public sentiment about the environment and explored how different people respond to climate change in non-rational and emotion-driven ways. Her goal was to improve the efficacy of the public discussion around climate change. Dr Rebecca Huntley sat down for a chat with Dr Andy Horvath. Rebecca, eavesdrop on experts, guests get to obsess confess and profess. So Rebecca, I want you to stand on the soapbox and profess. The important truth that I want to profess on this soapbox is that climate change isn't just a partisan political issue. It isn't just a scientific fact. It's something that we all need to confront personally, psychologically in our lives and really understand, not just as a not just as something that is going to affect us in the future, but is affecting us right now. So it's more than a social issue or political issue or even economic issue, if we like. It's a personal issue. I think it is, it's all of those things. It's been seen in the past as kind of personally remote. So all of the research that gets done in Australia and globally has shown one of the barriers to people acting on climate change is they don't think it's going to affect them personally or if it's it's going to affect maybe their grandchildren or if even if it is affecting the world now it's not you know getting to the things that they would normally say are really important to them so things like cost of living or safety and security happiness of their children um, economic security so there's been a disconnect from climate change and our daily lives now that's breaking down a bit but perhaps not fast enough (laughs) for us to necessarily mean that we're all sending the same kind of message to our political leaders through the ballot box that they need to take it both personally and seriously today. Tell us about some misconceptions that the public have or things that you encounter that are just perhaps misguided in their framings. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose the first thing that I would say, the first important misconception is that people overestimate the numbers of people in the community who don't believe in climate change. So the CSIRO did a really fascinating study, and it's borne out by other research as well, where they asked large groups of people whether they believed in climate change, whether it was real, human-caused, and they got you know the usual statistics that we get, you know, anywhere between 60 and 70% of people agreeing. And then they said, how many people in the community do you think deny that climate change is happening? And they overestimated by about 
three times. So, you know, and again, it depends on the survey, but most surveys show that that really the hardcore people who deny that climate change is happening or we have to do anything or believe that the future of our energy source should be kind of coal is less than 10%, but everybody was putting it at 20 or 30%. So we overestimate who doesn't believe in climate change and who thinks that the future of Australia's energy supply should be coal. And that's because... Those voices are amplified in the media, in in certain parts of corporate Australia, and in some parts of the government. So that's a really important misconception. If you worry about climate change, then you are not alone. In fact, you are in the majority and a growing majority. That sort of misconception sort of silences the discussions that we need to have because we think we're kind of on our own, on our, as Australians say, Pat Malone, standing out there thinking about climate change and going, oh, like, we're not talk about it in this public space or even at this dinner party or even at the water cooler because they may not be believers. Oh, you're absolutely right. There was a really fantastic TED Talk, if anybody wants to go out and look at it, by a woman called Catherine Hayo, and she's a very interesting, she's a climate scientist She's also an evangelical Christian. She's amazing. She's a great, great communicator, um, originally from Canada, but lives in the US. And she's done this TED Talk, which says the most radical thing you can do about climate change is talk about it. Because our perception, the perception of most people is that, and this is mediated by social media, the people talking about climate change on social media are yelling at each other at the fringes in many ways. Well, that's our perception. So one of the questions I always ask in my research of Australian citizens on climate is I ask them, do you ever talk about it? Can you think about a time where you have talked about climate change with friends or colleagues? And they go, oh, no, no. And and part of it is because it might not be front of mind. They don't necessarily connect climate change to the things that they would normally talk about. Part of it is it's become, I mean, we're more comfortable talking about sex and religion <laughs> <laughs> at the dinner table than we are talking about climate change. And and one of the things I think about it is, you know, for me, the symbol really is of the Christmas dinner that you have, you know, with all the extended relatives and you've got, you know, the teenagers really fired up by the school climate strike and wants to yell over the table at grandpa who just listens just to, you know, right-wing talkback radio and thinks it's all a conspiracy. And everybody else just wants to drink their alcohol and eat, you know, eat their baked ham and just wants you know, peace and quiet because it's seen as such a divisive issue. And, of course, the other thing that, that enters here is that a lot of the time people feel like they need to have a really an absolute certain grasp of the science in order to feel like they can talk about it. And really, the climate science is very, very complex but also fundamentally quite simple as well. As <laughs> somebody who's never done science... I get what it's about. So that not understanding the science perfectly, not being absolutely certain, shouldn't be a barrier to talking about it. What is the science that you understand <laughs> from the non-scientist perspective? Share that with us. In the last 18 months, when almost all of my research and interest has been on the social response to climate change, I had to kind of read a lot, a lot of climate science to get my head around it. And what's been extraordinary to me is that the fundamentals of the climate science have been there for about 100 years. And there's been no fundamental breakthrough in the science around climate change since the late 70s, early 80s. What has been happening is lots and lots of different um, natural scientists, let's not talk about the social scientists for a moment, but the natural scientists are, they're not rethinking the fundamentals. 
they're just watching an accelerated rate of change. And so that is why they are so alarmed. All those projections that they were making 30 years ago um, have been um, superseded incredibly quickly. Dr Rebecca Huntley, renewing democracy in a time of environmental crisis, is the answer political democracy? Is that the keystone for our turning point? Look, renewing democracy is really critical to dealing with climate change. And that's because trust in the ability of our social and political institutions to bring about any kind of massive transition is very low. So there's low trust in politicians, low trust in our corporate leaders. There's even been trust in our religious leaders and you know civil society leaders has diminished. So renewing people's belief that our leaders will bring about the kinds of change, particularly the kinds of hard decisions that will bring about long-term change, is critical to their levels of optimism. So there are high levels of concern in the community, regardless of how you measure them about climate change. But people have very low levels of expectation that our leaders not only can but will do anything about it. So I'll give you a very small example. In research, when I'm, when I'm doing stuff around climate change, you'll ask people about their level of concern, what do they want to see happen? And then you'll say, well, what's the likelihood that it will happen? They say, well, both political parties take so much money from coal that there's absolutely no way that they're going to make any kind of change that means the people that fund their campaigns are going to be out of pocket. We do feel as though the economic drivers of this are really the dollar bill. Yeah, but I mean, the thing that is so frustrating is actually there is a strong, strong economic case for getting away from coal. The, the, the pace of it is different, the pa- you know, how quickly we do it and where we do it. But there's a massively strong economic case for getting away from coal and going into renewables. And large groups of investors recognise that. Large companies recognise that, right, outside the coal and gas industry. So it's actually not about that. It's actually about this sense that the community have that the core group of leaders who run the country and are able to create the kind of fundamental policy frameworks for this transition are being bought by a group that don't want to see that transition happening. So this is why things like, you know, reform of the political donation system, which in Australia is just extraordinarily bad, (laughs) and has been for a long time, certainly at the federal level, is an important part of restoring people's faith that a transition away from old energy sources to these new renewable energy sources as part of dealing with climate change is something that will actually happen rather than something that will not happen. Tell me about that sort of pervasive helplessness of the population because that's what I feel like when I'm not sure where to recycle, not sure whether or not that's the right approach or uh, indecision about keep cups. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking the minutiae yeah. because it is also the minutiae. It's the other end of the spectrum of the coal companies. It's me yeah, doing what absolutely. I can. I think one of the things that we've seen, um, particularly this week with fires sweeping across New South Wales and, and Queensland, and we've seen in the past with things like floods, is the ability of communities to come together at, at times of crisis and help each other come up with new solutions and do things. And we can see that even in times of non-crisis, you know, communities that have decided, okay, we're really going to focus on this one issue. 
And when you travel around Australia, as I do for love and for work, you see lots and lots of examples locally of communities deciding to come together to to protect an, an area of bush or to eradicate invasive species in order for native species to come back. So we, we can see that that extraordinary collaboration happen. But at the same time, we're overwhelmed in our lives in so many ways, you know, raising kids and working and commuting and all the rest of it and the constant barrage of information that we sometimes second-guess ourselves, you know, about whether what we're doing is effective. I mean, you talk about keeper cups. I mean, let's take it back into the area of, of... renewable energy. You know, I've witnessed over the last 15 years a really big discussion in the community, this kind of recognition that renewable energy is the future. But, well, should I put solar panels on my roof? Or, you know, is the investment or is that going to happen? Or where should that go? Or, you know, so it's really difficult. One of the problems of the environmental movement more broadly is that we haven't necessarily made it about personal decisions and system change. The moment that that environmental issues come about, oh, you know, that the fate of the world is about whether I remember my keeper cup, that is not a good thing because we're we're suddenly back to individual responsibility and guilt and, oh, my God, I've got so much else to worry about. So it has to be a community level. It has to stay fixed at the community collaborative level to make those individual decisions easier and to bring about those kinds of significant systems change that everybody wants. That's beautiful. You're really doing a call to action for all the organised tribes out there to get organised. Exactly. exactly. Um, those natural tribes that exist at community level or at a institution level. Absolutely. Um, wherever those tribes, so to speak, yeah. exist. Tell me about how you got into this area. What enticed you? Why, why did Rebecca go down this path? The path of social research or the path of interest in climate change? Well, I think the social research okay. is what we'd like yeah. to explore because you've become a voice for planet Earth. The social research came out of, you know, I put a chance meeting with Hugh McKay about, you know, 16 years ago at a time in which I was beginning to think about, kind of questioning whether an academic career was going to suit me. And, you know, like so many um, Gen X academic, uh, baby academics, there wasn't a very easy path from a PhD into kind of secure employment. And so I was thinking, you know, is there other things I might want to do? And so I met him and got involved at that stage, got employed by Ipsos to do something called the Mind and Mood Report and kind of discovered a world of research and analysis and working on ideas with the team that isn't necessarily, certainly nowhere near kind of academic rigour, but still ticked all those boxes for me. Um, I miss teaching, but in a sense, some of my clients will say that I teach them (laughs) about things. Um, So I really, really enjoyed it um, and have continued to enjoy it. And in a sense, I kind of feel with this interest in climate change, it was always kind of coming because in the end, I've always followed the issues that the Australian community are concerned about. And so 15 years ago, one of the biggest issues they were concerned about was immigration, and it remains an issue. It remains enmeshed in the discussion around climate change. Um, So I've written a lot about that. But in a sense, you know, for me, the the arrival at the concern around climate change has been academic and professional for a while. But for me, I have three girls, and when I saw the kids striking for climate, the first strike in Australia... um, there was a profound emotional shift for me because I thought, 
you know, these young women and men are only a couple of years older than my oldest child and they're asking an older generation to take this seriously. And so it was a really, I mean, I get quite emotional when I think about it, it was an immediate emotional reaction to their activism. And uh, I decided that the extent to which any of my skills are useful. And my husband often laughs. He says, when people ask him what I do, he says, I'm an expert on the views of people who don't know what they're talking about, <laughs> which is not true. But I suppose he's an engineer, so he deals in kind of, you know, physics and absolutes. So um, the extent to which at the moment, one of the most important things for the climate movement is to understand how people who are not natural scientists feel about this issue, which is which has been highly politicised and it is pressing, the extent to which I can help a movement understand how we, um, how we understand where people are and how we take them on a kind of journey towards recognising our serious climate changes, well, then that's an important contribution. Does grouping together pollution, energy, all the other issues that are counter to our planet's well-being useful? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I've thought about this for a while. And one of the things that's triggered this for me is that we've got at the moment a really terrific and important focus on plastic recycling in Australia. And that's been a consequence of a number of things, including the ABC War on Waste show. One of the things I see happening in groups that I do, research groups that I conduct, is that people see the environmental challenge as massive and and climate change sits above it all. And so we're all trying to think about how we can deal with it. And so people often think, well, oh, well, you know, I I recycle and, you know, I'm not using single-use plastic bags. That's my contribution to climate change. And there's a problem, (laughs) first of all, that that they're not necessarily connected. But also I think it's an example of what I talked about before, which is if we don't think about climate change seriously as a system and community level issue, we do fall back on these little things. And the muddying of the waters between plastics recycling and and climate is a problem because it makes people think I'm doing my bit and so I don't have to think about this much scarier thing. You know, as much as a world drowning in plastic is scarier, a world with three degree warming is much, much scarier. So, But what I do think is that the extent to which people value the natural environment, not just value it as a resource to be exploited, but as an inheritance, as something that we inherit and we give to our children, as something of enormous social, cultural, emotional, psychological value. And whether that be a parkland in an urban area or a place where you can see a koala in the wild kind of doesn't matter where it is. That kind of connection to the natural environment and that recognition that the natural environment and our social world are connected, that is such an important gateway into making people understand that protecting that in any kind of way is reliant upon Um, action to climate change. So one of the questions we always ask when we're doing research and recruiting people is we ask people, it sounds like a really simple question, but it's really powerful. How often do you spend time in the natural environment and what do you do in it? So getting people's an understanding of people's relationship with the natural environment is actually really critical to getting them to understand, understanding their worldview about a range of things. So while collapsing all of these complex issues about the environment 
into one bucket can mean that it's a little easier for people to avoid the very difficult issue of climate change. Valuing the natural environment is an essential part to getting people on the pathway towards action around climate change. That's a beautiful call to action. You're asking us to actually almost be in the ecology to understand that we are the ecology. It might even be as simple as taking your shoes off and filling your lawn. Absolutely. (laughs) That's absolutely right. Um, I want to ask you about changes you've seen. Now, you would have seen changes since you started this research. One of the more upsetting changes, and, and, you know, I remember the moment, you know, one of the great things about doing qualitative research rather than quantitative research, I do quantitative research, but I'm mainly a quali, as we call it in the industry, was the excitement and then disappointment around the election of Kevin Rudd was a turning point, really. I mean, Australians have never really loved their politicians. They've always been kind of bit cynical about them. And there's good and bad things about being sceptical about our leaders, right? But there was something about that enthusiasm for his government, which was probably akin to the enthusiasm of the, you know, the Hawke government when it was first elected and for some people, even the Whitlam government. And it dissipated so quickly. And there was a moment, and I, you know, I remember it, you know, when you remember how people in, in research can crystallise what's happening more broadly. So I was in a Wollongong bowling club with a whole lot of men in their early 60s conducting a focus group. These are men that had voted Labor most of their life, perhaps except for one particularly dysfunctional Labor government. And one man said, I've voted Labor my whole life. And then, you know, I was excited about Kevin Rudd. And then he was deposed. And for the first time in my entire life, I put a line through the ballot paper. I couldn't vote for the Conservatives, but I couldn't vote for the Labor Party. And for a man who'd been voting, you know, in his early 60s, voting Labor his whole life, this wasn't an informal vote. He knew how to vote. He was basically saying, what is wrong with the political system that this could happen? And so obviously that triggered a range of other things in both political parties about the idea that you can just pull leaders inside and out of, of leadership positions, that you can undermine them and get rid of them because you're incapable as a political party to deal with some fundamental issues. And of course, climate change has been at the centre of so many, so much of this political turmoil. And it, that's not an accident, right? Because action on climate change requires a political party to really decide what matters, what is our legacy. Are we prepared to deal with the short-term pain from industry or from parts of the media in order to set up something we know is absolutely critical for the future well-being of this nation. So it becomes a kind of example of the inability of modern leadership to govern. And so there was that moment when I walked away and I thought, God, if he can do that, if he can, an assiduous, thoughtful man who'd been a voter his whole life, actively throw his vote away. This was not a man. This was actually in the election of Julia Gillard and Tony Abbott. This is a man who really disliked Tony Abbott. He was not, you know, agnostic about whether Tony Abbott should be Prime Minister. But it really indicated to me, okay, we're in a new kind of world. And so that's been the most disheartening change I've seen over that period. Do you have a positive outlook for the future? I have to, you know, I have to. Because to not have a positive outlook would be a dereliction of duty to my children. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, because I have to wake up every day and make a decision to do certain things to make sure that the world is as safe as possible for them. And I do that by, you know, cutting up their grapes and <laughs> and um, making sure they have sunscreen on. And part of it is about being optimistic. But one of the sources of optimism for me is actually just seeing traveling the country and seeing the ability of particularly communities to kind of rally together and do interesting and important things, um, sometimes with the help of government and businesses and sometimes not. So that's a source of endless optimism for me. That's a welcome change you've observed. Next time we're outside and pondering the bigger picture that's bigger than us, what would you like us to think about? I'd like people to look up from their mobile phones for a moment. <laughs> Look around at the people around them and think about the kinds of conversations they can have with them that are both respectful but challenging, you know. So one thing I want people to think about is how can you start a conversation about climate change that isn't about arguing with somebody but about really understanding why their views about climate change are the way they are. I'd like them to look around at our extraordinary and unique natural environment, which is one of the things that sets us apart. I mean, Australians like to think we're... You know, we have we have a kind of you know relentless, um, I suppose, patriotism that we're the best at everything. But oh, we're a unique country. But you know, we share a lot of, in common with other countries. But our natural environment and the culture of our First Nations people is really what sets us apart. And so to look at that, see that, understand that, learn about that, and value that, find a way to value that now in everyday life would be good. Dr. Rebecca Huntley, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Rebecca Huntley, social researcher and author, and thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 18, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.